listener production. Alain de Botton is a writer of over 15 books that have been described as the philosophy of everyday life. He's written on love, travel, architecture and literature, and his books have been bestsellers in 30 countries. Alain says, I was a young man who really wanted to know the meaning of life. I wanted guidance in the big questions. I wanted to know why I was anxious, why I might be sad, what love was. He has spent the rest of his life finding this information and sharing it with us all. Alain is also the founder of the world-renowned School of Life, which is an education space dedicated to a new vision of education, emotional intelligence and self-knowledge. In the conversation that follows, Alain and I discuss love and its mighty force, why having a breakdown is not the end of life, but for a lot of us, it's the beginning, and childhood, why having things happen in our youth does not define us if we do the work. A child that's been listened to doesn't become a monster. It becomes someone who will be able to listen to others. A child who's been made to feel that they are, for a time, the central person in the universe is not going to become one of those proverbial narcissists or egoists or grandiose people. They're going to be somebody who is able, because they've had their fill, to take their place in the periphery of life and help others. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Alain de Botton has his new book, A Therapeutic Journey, Lessons from a School of Life, which is a must-read. Alain's wisdom both embodies and inspires in a world in which his voice and vision feel as resonant as ever. He shares wise advice about taking the stigma away from mental health issues and embraces the messiness of life so as to exist between the joy and pain of a single experience. My hope is that this conversation guides you towards the many tools available to help you with your mental health and a greater sense of meaning and purpose. Alan, you say a breakdown is a breakthrough. It's a process of growth. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, I mean, look, there's a really unfortunate way in which our minds seem divided between an impulse to understand themselves and an impulse to be comfortable. And often there's a kind of conflict. It's like the more you really need to understand yourself, the more you're probably going to have to take on board some uncomfortable truths. Maybe you're in the wrong relationship. Maybe you haven't squared up to your sexuality. Maybe your working ambitions are being stifled in in some way. Perhaps you're hanging out with the wrong friendship group, whatever it is. And, you know, we're very good at just keeping ourselves going at pushing away uncomfortable truths. But the way that our minds work is I think we, we've got a conscience, a kind of emotional conscience that isn't going to give us proper rest until we've felt what we need to feel and thought what we need to think. So there are lots of 
unfelt feelings and unthought thoughts that are lingering in our minds, we often spend a lot of time running away from them in a sort of manic state where we might be using drugs, alcohol to run away from things, but also in a more ordinary way, we might be using checking Twitter, the news, exercise, uh, even our families. We, you can use anything to protect you from an encounter with the more visceral but complicated bits of yourself. And I think that can go on for many, many years until the body and mind can take it no more. And at that point, we may run into the proverbial breakdown. And what a breakdown often is, is one part of the mind's desperate attempt to tell the other about certain things that are both very difficult and very important. And that's why interpreted properly, a breakdown could be what we call a breakthrough. I believe that to be true because, you know, many years ago, as I think a lot of us did, you know, I had my own dark night of the soul. As hard as it was at the time, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, this podcast would not be here if that didn't exist. And we learned so much through the toughest times, even though they can be so hard. I wanted to talk to you, Alan, because you've obviously written on a myriad of topics and you have a wealth of knowledge in so many different areas. But I, I wanted to start with your childhood. You grew up in Zurich and have said that your childhood was one of financial ease and emotional deprivation. And in your new book, A Therapeutic Journey, Lessons from the School of Life, you do go on to talk a lot about how upbringing, as much as we sometimes don't want to go there, does have a lot in the sense of how we are shaped today. And we can change everything about that. Like if you grew up in terrible conditions, that doesn't mean you're destined for a terrible life. But I wanted to start with your own experiences when you were young. Let's start by saying to our listeners that this emphasis on childhood is very, very annoying. Mm. Who wants to hear when they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, that it all has to do with your childhood? It's it sounds like a cliche, uh, but more than that, it puts you in such a kind of impotent position where, you know, the reasons why you're falling in love in the way you are or you're behaving at work in a certain way, that it all comes down to things, you know, before you were five, six, seven. And, and this is a monstrous stripping of agency. And I think it's just important to kind of let out a small howl of pain at the, the boringness of this childhood focus. However... And you mentioned that in the book as well. I love that. Yeah. However, you know, think of the way that, you know, in the 19th century, it took ages for people to understand that in a jug of water, there could be living bacteria and subbacterial elements that could poison a, a whole well, a whole city that could make off with millions of, of citizens. And that a lot of dark and bad things exist at a very, very invisible level. And I think a similar sort of insight awaits us when we think of childhood, where there may not be anything, you know, if you look at it from afar, did anything happen in your childhood? Well, you know, not really, no, no one killed anyone, there was food on the table, so things must have been fine. Hmm. Unfortunately, rather as macrobiotic life teaches us, there's a lot that goes on invisible to the naked eye. And in the psychological case, invisible to a hasty glance under the title of love. You capture some of what a child is going to need. And there's a wonderful quote by John Bowlby, the inventor, together with Mary Ainsworth, of attachment theory, where he says that love 
is to a growing child what vitamins are to growing bones. And it's very true, it captures how, um, of course, you can develop without love and without vitamins, but you can't reach your full potential. And, you know, what is love in childhood? I think it's giving, well, many elements, but one of them is giving the child a sense that it was wanted, that its presence on the earth was awaited by those around, and that those around have a capacity to attend to the needs of the child. And that's not entirely obvious. If you go to the supermarket and listen to parents and watch parenting around, you know, many, many parents, I've been a parent, I know how it is, are too beset by their own crises, their own you know, impinging emotions, to be able to get down on the floor, as it were, to the child's level and listen, properly listen. You know, a child that's been listened to doesn't become a monster. It becomes someone who will be able to listen to others. A child who's been made to feel that they are, for a time, the central person in the universe is not going to become one of those proverbial narcissists or egoists or grandiose people. They're going to be somebody who is able, because they've had their fill, to take their place you know, in the periphery of life and help others. So a lot is going on under the cover of an ordinary childhood. We learn as children an emotional language, a little bit like we learn a language of, of words, a grammatical language, and it goes in just as normal language does without any conscious effort. We just breathe in the surrounding atmosphere. So just as we may be learning you know, Finnish or Korean uh, in a household, in another household, we may be learning trust or distrust. We may be learning that men will do dot, 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 or that women, once we're close to them, will do dot, 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 or that if we trust someone, dot, 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 you know, whatever it is, we're all learning a very distinctive dialect. And rather like with language, it can take a long while to realize that we are speaking in a distinctive dialect and that we are entering adult life full of what in the trade course get called projections. So we assume that everyone in authority is a certain way, or everyone that we choose to put our faith in will do, do dot, dot, dot. And some of these projections may be wildly unfair and inaccurate to the actual conditions of adult life, and also wildly, if you like, betray our potential and our possibilities with the people around us in the here and now. One thing you said in your book that I thought was really interesting, because I thought I can't imagine as a mother myself being like that, but I'm sure there are definitely people that are. You spoke about there are parents out there that can sometimes be very envious and kind of jealous of their children, maybe because they had a better life than what that parent has gone through. And that's a, you know, obviously not a great way to foster, you know, a healthy environment for a child. Yes. I mean, look, a lot in family dynamics is darker than we would like it to be. The way through that is to look at it with with honesty, with courage, even a certain dark humour, but certainly not to run away from it. 100%. There are parents, and perhaps all parents, to some extent, in some areas, will find their child's success and thriving difficult for them. It may be that, you know, the child becomes a teenager and has a, a vibrant social life. And for some reason, the parent is irritated 
They don't even know they're irritated. They're just absolutely sure the child must come back at 10.30. And if they're one minute late, they're going to get an earful. What's going on there? If you strip back the layers, it's not just that the parent is worried, maybe worried a bit too. Ultimately, there's also a 15-year-old in that parent who remembers that they didn't have such a good time. And, you know, it's been their life's work to ensure that their child has a better childhood than they did. But that doesn't mean to say it's going to be easy if they succeed. And so I think we need to be ready for a certain amount of parental envy. It's almost, I would say, a normal part of family life. Let's also bear in mind that parents will bully their children. And we hear, when we hear that word, we think of always the most dramatic examples. But you know, when we think of bullying, bullying is a way of something afflicting me that I can't bear, that I put into you. And parenting brings you up against all sorts of vulnerabilities. Your children are so vulnerable, they're so incompetent, if you like, that you have to have a really good handle on your own weakness and incompetence as it existed in your own past to be able to bear witnessing this small person struggling with things that it took you a huge amount of effort to overcome and maybe you didn't have much help. So, you know, when you see the kids saying, I don't know, I don't fancy school today or the teacher's boring, I just, I just want to play a video game. You may think, I want in some way for that child to learn how hard it was for me when I was in that position. So I love the child, but I also need to redirect some of the pain onto them. So I'm going to give it a pretty hard time, harder in a way than is necessary, because I'm carrying a kind of unresolved uh, bitterness about what happened to me. So all parenting confronts one, not just with the child, but with one's own childhood. And I think as an adult, one of the really key questions that we can all ask is, what were my parents wrestling with in themselves when they were bringing me up? And we may not have a precise answer, we may not have an answer at all, but we're likely to have a kind of hunch. You know, maybe they were wrestling with, I don't know, a status issue. They weren't, they weren't as recognized they wanted to be. Maybe they were had been marginalized by their own father, by their own mother, you know, whatever it will be. But the point is, what was on their plate has, in one of these devilish ways, ended up in some ways on your plate. And many, many of us are in a way, without necessarily being fully conscious of it, leading lives whereby we're trying to solve a puzzle, a difficulty in the lives of our parents. And it's good to understand that more consciously so we can say, hmm, that's why I became a school teacher, or that's why I'm so keen to make money, or that's why I'm so keen not to make money. Whatever it may be, we all come at this from our own particular vision of what it was that our own parents were suffering from. There is that compassion point as well. Most parents were just doing the best that they knew at the time. And I think some people can beat up on their parents a lot, but most parents are only doing what they think is right. And they don't mean harm by that, even though we can see like, oh, you did this and that scarred us. There is that point when we do, and especially I think if you're a parent yourself, you realise it's hard to tick all the boxes all the time because this is life. I, I think that's right. I, I do think there are differences between parents who, once the kids are grown up, will maybe step back, have a little bit of time to themselves, maybe doing their own evolution. Mm. So who they are in their 
mid-50s. It's quite different to who they were when they were in their late 20s. A lot has happened in their life. And one of the best things that can happen, and it's really beautiful, is when a parent is able to have a certain sort of conversation with their now adult child that they've never had before and are able to take on board that, yeah, they were, there were some strange things. There were some things that they regretted. You know, I always think we don't need people to be fully sane. We need people to be able to accept the ways in which perhaps they're not totally sane and to do so with grace, with politeness, with, with humor, without anger. And when that happens, that's very beautiful and it can begin a whole new relationship. It's almost like the relationship with a parent can begin anew. But there are also cases, I'm sure you all, we'd all know them, when parents can't, they can't use the time to have done that work and they have to defend their legacy in a very defensive way. And everything was fine, everything was fine. You're the crazy one, we're fine. And, and that's very, very dispiriting. And then the child, the adult child has to not only suffer their own childhood and remember the suffering of their own childhood, but also forgive a parent who doesn't feel they need to be forgiven because they've done nothing wrong. And that's an extra burden, I would say. How was your childhood? My childhood? Well, I wouldn't be in this business if it had been perfect. I think I'm someone who is driven to understand things that I experience that are puzzling. And I think from a young age, you know, I wrote my first book when I was 21. What I was really doing was just trying to unpick dynamics that I had witnessed around me. And, you know, I've placed, made a great emphasis on knowledge being practical. And when I was involved in universities, you know, some university colleagues were, you know, not like that. They were like, you know, we want Plato or Freud for, for ourselves. We don't, we don't want that to be used for, you know, solving your life problems. But I suppose from inside me, it was always really important to try and figure me out. I mean, I do remember buying some, some journals when I was 18 and thinking, I've got stuff to unpick, precisely because I did have a, a sort of knotted upbringing. You know, I sometimes think the difference between an easy and a difficult childhood is how much stuff does the kid need to think about once that childhood is over? Can, can they just go off and become an engineer or, uh, you know, uh, do needlework or whatever? And it doesn't, you know, they don't need to go back and explore and examine. But I also know, you know, for people who thinking, I, d I don't want to go back to the past. The point of going back to the past is not some nostalgia fest or some self-indulgence. It's so that you can finally fully shut the door on the whole business and move on. So you're studying the past, not for the past sake, but doing it for your own future and for a more liberated future. And so that when it comes to, you know, making choices, you'll be freer because, you know, let's, let's keep in mind that the way you feel about yourself as an adult is such a legacy of childhood. I mean, here's something for your listeners. You know, ask anyone, how do you feel about yourself? You know, do you feel broadly okay or broadly not okay, right? Imagine a mark out of 10, you know? There are some people, we don't need to actually do it, but there are some people who will instinctively go mm, zero and one, it's kind of where I'm at. You know, life may be okay for them in some ways, but when they think about themselves and who they are, they think, I'm a, I'm a zero, I'm a one. And others will go, oh, I'm an eight or a nine or whatever. And what is that other than the internalized legacy of how others around them, important caregivers, looked at them in early 
childhood. And, you know, it's the work of a lifetime to try and shift that assessment. Um, we all of us pick up the voices from outside and turn them into voices from the inside. So the way in which we speak to ourselves is always an internalization of the way somebody else spoke to us. And we may need to get some of those voices out of our heads if we're going to be able to lead fulfilled lives. And, and as I said, that could be the work of many, many decades. What in your experience and your knowledge are the best strategies for that? You mentioned psychotherapy in your new book, which is kind of talking that out. Is there any other suggestions that you could give? Without wishing to sound sentimental, it's a deficit of love that made us ill. And therefore, it's going to be an experience of love that will make us well. Now, that doesn't have to mean romantic love. You know, what I mean by love is certain things. Someone will hear us. Someone will see us. Someone will take the trouble, an immense trouble, to enter into our mental states and with care, with sympathy, with imagination, look at the way that we are telling our story, that we are interpreting events and go, hmm, is that fair? Is that right? Is the way in which you look at events, does that do justice to who you are and to what might be possible? I think the legacy of a bad childhood is we're tearing ourselves apart. We are literally our own worst enemies, precisely because there was a deficit of early love. And an experience of later love can help to change how we talk and live within ourselves. It's not an overnight process. It could be a relationship that is loving. Now, it's one of the sort of absolute tragedies of this, that those who've experienced a deficit of love will make enormous, assiduous efforts to refuse love in adulthood because it will feel unfamiliar and it will feel, even more importantly, undeserved. Why should another person think better of me than I think of themselves? They must be a fraud. There must be something wrong with them. What's wrong with this weirdo for thinking I'm okay, right? So beware anyone who tries to love someone who doesn't love themselves. You're in for a hard time. It could be a very fulfilling project, but at various points, the person's going to turn around and go, what's wrong with you? And they're not necessarily going to say why they think that, but essentially they're going to say, what's wrong with you for loving someone like me? And it's a terribly difficult uh, situation. It's a, there's a, basically a situation of, of inbred masochism. And let's bear in mind another sort of rule of psychological life. Children who've had difficult parents, when they're very little, do not turn around and go to the parent What's wrong with you? Dad, mum, why are you shouting all the time? Why are you drinking like that? Why are you slapping me around? Why are you telling me I'm an idiot? I'm three years old. You're 45. You should be getting your grip together. No, no. What do little children do? This is truly tragic. What children do is think there's something wrong with me. What have I done wrong? Mummy's hitting daddy. Daddy's hitting mummy. Someone set fire to the kitchen. There's no money. Someone's being mean to me. What's happened? I've done something wrong. The child automatically assumes that if bad is done to it, it's a sign that it is bad. At base, it's a self-protective mechanism. It would be too shocking for the growing child to think that its only protection from the world was to be in the hands of wildly inadequate and sadistic people. So it prefers to do something poignant, but sort of psychologically important, which is to blame itself. And so self-hatred 
is usually a legacy of having been on the receiving end of hateful behavior. And so that causes huge difficulty. So, so learning to unpick that, you know, you say, how is that done? I, I mentioned love, therapy, sure. You know, the book is called A Therapeutic Journey. I always want to start with this. Many therapists are inadequate <laughs> for you. They may not be right for you. Great thing about therapy when it works well is you take those things that you do normally at the office, in the relationship, with your kids, with your parents. But rather than doing it with those people who are all in a hurry and they're not psychologically trained, you do it in a neutral environment and with someone who's very trained and you do it to the therapist. It's touching and, and almost amazing to see this happen. You'll start saying to the therapist after a few sessions, I know you hate me. I know you think I'm unattractive. And the therapist because no, I, I don't think so. Uh, and genuinely doesn't think so. But the person is utterly convinced of it. Or the person might go, I know that you're uh, about to end this session and close down our therapy. The therapist is saying, no, I'm available for the next 12 months. We can have sessions anytime. No, I know it's going to come to an end. And what's going on is the thing that you do anyway, because it's a story from your past, is being shown in the therapy room. It's like a Petri dish. But you can look at it and the therapist can then do that wonderful thing, which is to start to correct the assumption and, and can literally say to the client, I'm not sure everybody does hate you. I certainly don't. Or I'm not sure you're so stupid. I think what you're saying is quite interesting. Or I'm not sure that I'm going to hit you. I've really got no interest in hitting you. I don't hit people. You know, all of these things, which are legacies of a past that's simply being currently projected out. Something within that that I think is really interesting is the stories we tell ourselves. There's this beautiful Mark Twain quote that said, I had such tragedy in my life, none of which came true. And it's true. You know, we think all these things or we have these thoughts that we ruminate on and none of which, like you said, we are our worst enemy. I mean, maybe occasionally something comes to fruition. But a lot of the time, you know, we're lying there in bed at 3am thinking the worst of the worst for none of it to even be true. It's just these stories that we tell ourselves. And I feel that a lot of our suffering in the human experience comes from ourselves rather than from external. Yes. And, and it's terribly sad because we, you know, here we are locked into our heads. Reality has its challenges. There are certain things we have to suffer. We all have to die. We have to watch our loved ones die. But on top of it, we layer on unbelievable amounts of suffering. And, you know, this is broadly what we can call mental ill health. That, that is what mental ill health is. It's that extra layer of suffering that you are imposing on yourself. And very often it is a projection into the future of dynamics in the past that have not been properly understood. There's a wonderful quote from the English psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott, where he says, the catastrophe you fear will happen has already happened. But the caveat is you've forgotten it. You've forgotten it. So, so you know, a very useful exercise for listeners for everything is to say, what's the thing you most fear is going to happen? Write that down on a piece of paper, shut your eyes, and then think, okay, what is it in my past that in some ways connects up with that fear? If I were to think, not that this is a fear of the future, but this is actually something from the past. And it's a rather dazzling exercise because it really does pick up that the thing that we apprehend in the future 
is a past event. And that if we're able to properly see and mourn that past event, the future loses some of its sense of dread. What I love about your new book is that it takes us through the arc of a mental health journey from crisis to recuperation. And there's different things you touch on. And one, which has just been coming up a lot recently, and it's so basic, is sleep. And, you know, we've known for a long time that we need eight hours of sleep, but I almost feel that we just know it, but we don't do it. And it's, you know, as kind of mentioned to you briefly before we started recording you know, I have jet lag and really I'm a good sleeper normally. And I realized like, wow, I really don't work well on a little amount of sleep. You know, if someone looks at me at the wrong way today, like I'm like, ah, you know, let alone if that was the norm. And I really would love to touch on the subject of sleep because I really feel that it is so unbelievably important. And a friend of mine who lost his life to suicide many years ago, the first thing that he said when he started to deteriorate mentally was that he just wasn't sleeping. He just stopped being able to sleep. So I'd love to know your research on that. Some of the reason why we don't take sleep seriously is some of the reason why we don't take a lot of physical things seriously. And that's because of the way that we're built. We are reasoning, thinking machines who can't readily understand because there is no there is no direct sensation about this we can't readily understand the role the body and its health play within some of our thoughts so you you could be very tired and someone could ask you so what do you think of the future of humanity and particularly you know democracies in the western world and you could go it's absolutely terrible it's all going to hell and you could feel absolutely convinced that you are giving your best rational analysis of the future of parliamentary democracy in the G7 nations or whatever it is, right? And then you realize, actually, I've got a deficit of four and a half hours of sleep. So actually, my judgment on the future of parliamentary democracy, the health of my children, my relationship you know, with my spouse, uh, my relationship with my colleagues, etc., the whole thing is being massively colored by those missing hours, but you've lost touch with them. You don't see it. The people who understand this best are the parents of small children, because you'll be with an adorable two and a half year old, and it's singing, and it's jolly, and it's all whatever. And then suddenly, I don't know, a button comes off a jacket, and the kid starts wailing. And you think, oh my goodness, what on earth's going on? It's only a button. And the kid is inconsolable, and the wails can be heard, you know, seven blocks down the street. Now, a sort of philosophically inclined uh, parent, which I've been in the past, would think, hmm, there must be a rational reason for this. I must try to teach the child why a button coming off is not a disaster. It can be re-sewn and there can be repair. A wiser parent will go, the kid needs its nap. It's half an hour past nap time. Of course, the child is in a tragic state. Whip it straight into its bedroom, pull, pull the curtains down and give it the nap it needs, because only then will the world start to seem tolerable again. And the same applies, by the way, with blood sugar. You know, however tragic things are, ask yourself, when was the last time that I had an injection of sugar? I mean, I'm not talking crazy sugar, good sugar, fruit sugar, etc. Like we survive on a certain amount of sugar and, you know, miss that out. And again, we'll start to be pretty tragic. And so, look, it's a tragic comic aspect of the way we are as humans. 
big-brained creatures who always think that the explanations for our problems have big brain problems. You know, our, our relationships have gone wrong because I don't know, there's an intimacy issue or, you know, they didn't do this or that. You know. And it may sometimes be we're missing three hours, our blood sugar's low, et cetera, et cetera. So making friends with your body, understanding that your body is a vital ally in trying to keep you sane. The reason why we don't do this is not a mere oversight. It's quite a dent to our pride. It's like, who wants to think that we're so vulnerable that a glass of water can kind of change our ideas on existence? Like, really? But yes, yes. So careful with that water. Something that's really interesting as well that you speak a lot about in the book that we just touched about is love. And I know that you're, this is a big topic for you in the sense that you've written a lot about it in the past. And it's one of my favourite topics as well, because I believe when you have a lot of love, you have more than you could need from a lot of other areas. But I wanted to talk about it in the sense, I know we spoke about it in childhood, but just love in a healthy mind. Why is love so important? And I know you speak about unconditional love and what exactly that is and all the different aspects of love that there are. You know how it feels sometimes if you've spent a weekend or a few days on your own and you think, I may be going a little mad. Of course, there's people who live on their own and they found ways of coping with it. But for many of us, spending too long on your own leads to a strange sensation. And I think that sensation is that many of your own troubles and biased ways of looking at reality start to have too much power over you. So you start to really become maybe paranoid or too fearful or too envious or bitter or angry or whatever it may be. And the presence of another person, it could be a friend, you know, a loving friend, helps to hold a mirror up to reality and go, is that really the case that you think da da da? And can vitally sort of re-regulate us. The presence of another person can regulate us. Another person can also be a huge tool of self-awareness. There's so much that all of us need to learn that we cannot learn on our own. Because as we began with, you know, we're so busy protecting ourselves from a sense that we're not as wonderful as we would like to be. And it's only someone who loves us quite a lot who's able to give us the courage to go into those places in our minds where we might have to acknowledge something really tricky. If an enemy does it harshly, we'll be too wounded, too fragile to take it on. But a loving person who does this, we may accompany them. And I think that, you know, one of the great benefits of good relationships should be that two people are able to learn from each other about their most difficult sides in an environment which is tender, supportive, kind. There's sometimes a a romantic idea that true love is about accepting someone for who they really are. I always think, mm, careful, careful, because you know, if we are merely endorsed for everything we do, for everything we say, for everything we want, we could grow into monsters. Mm. You know, that's not necessarily what love really is. I think love is having in mind the fundamental and basic goodness of someone, but also their proclivity to error, to mistakes, to compulsions, etc. And 
having their best self in view and with love, helping to guide them to it as they will do that for us. It's a two-way process. So, you know, it sounds very unromantic, but love is a kind of classroom where we should be learning about ourselves and teaching the other one about themselves in an atmosphere of kindness. That's could sound quite weird because it's not necessarily, you know, like, hang on, I thought we were about having a good time. Um, it is in a way about having a good time, but the way in which we'll have a good time is to get a handle on our tricky behavior, which is why, you know, the great enemy of love is this thing called defensiveness. When defensiveness rears its head anywhere, anywhere, it's always a problem, particularly in love. You know, when you say to someone or someone says to you, it's funny the way that, you know, whenever around that person, you always seem to get very cross and you say these slightly bitter things. I wonder why. And if you cross your arms and go, no, that's not true at all. What are you trying to do? Bring me down? Ruin my evening? You just think, oh, slippery slope. So we've all done it, largely because our blood sugar was probably low. But the more we can go, hmm, okay, it's not. We're very, you know, remember how we were talking about our susceptibility to orange juice and sleep? Well, we are hugely susceptible also to the wounds of emotional neglect. You know, an adult in a relationship is always simultaneously a three-year-old, a five-year-old. You know, that little one is in the relationship. And so sometimes people say to each other in relationships in anger, they go, oh, grow up, be, a, be an adult. It's like, uh, look, if you want an adult, go to the office on a good day, on a good day. If you want to have a complicated relationship which blends vulnerable infantile parts with mature adult parts, get into a relationship because that's what you're going to get. You're going to have to get that. And so we need to treat the kids inside each other with care and respect and be aware that they will be getting upset about all sorts of so-called small things, even silly things. You know, it's good to hang out with a kid of two to see how sensitive they are and laugh a little bit. <laughs> they had a tantrum because their yogurt top fell off, like the top of the yogurt fell off and they cried for an hour. <laughs> Don't laugh so fast because you, as an adult, are continuing to do your versions of that. And better to accept that infantile self and surround it with the kind of help it needs and the acknowledgement it needs in a couple than to try and pretend, no, no, we're reasonable. We got a we got a good BA at a, a top university. We we don't do that kind of stuff. We don't we don't cry about yogurt tops. Well, probably do. You talk about relationships, and I find that you know a very interesting topic. And I wonder, especially for mental health, what do you think about the people we surround ourselves with? So not only in an intimate relationship, but in our sphere of friends. You know, there's the saying that you're some of the people that you hang out with. Birds of a feather flock together. There's a lot of them. Do you believe that that influences us and how we show up in the world? Hugely, hugely. I mean, look, think about how it arises from childhood. Children are given parents or caregivers without choosing them. They, they are assigned to them. And that assignment lasts, you know, between zero and 20, 25. You know, it's, it's a massive assignment, which we have never chosen. Now, depending on how that assignment has gone, we'll be left with particular stories in our heads, unconscious stories, about how we should be around other people. And one of the, you know, it's, it's again, it's a sad story of our times. It's not, I'm not the first person to say this, but 
people who haven't necessarily been treated that well by their early caregivers are going to have a really hard time surrounding themselves with people who will treat them well in adulthood. They'll be slightly bleeding in the water, signs of, yeah, if you want to slightly, you know, neglect someone, I'm up for it. I know all about that. Yeah, I, you could give that a shot on me. You know, we, we give off so many unconscious signals about what we'll put up with. Mm. If we haven't checked in on ourselves and on, on, on what we're maybe bleeding in the water, it may be a long time before we realize, hang on a minute, I've got, I've got a few people called friends. Are they friends in the sense of looking after me like I look after them? It could be the work of a lifetime to surround ourselves with two or three people who we genuinely like, they genuinely like us, and there is kindness circulating. We may have people we call friends who are not friends for a very long time, because, you know, as I said earlier, nothing like this has ever happened before. It's not very natural that someone should respect our boundaries, be kind, et cetera, et cetera. We may be much more comfortable among people who, you know, likely bully us. I think, oh, I've come home. This is home. I like this. You know, it's it's paradoxical. You know, just like many people will sometimes ditch people, either romantically or as friends. And you say, well, what's wrong with that person? We can't actually say it. But if we were being honest, we'd say, well, what's really wrong with them? They're very nice. But the problem is they're too nice to fit with the story I have in me about the kind of treatment I deserve. So I've had to let them go because they threaten to bring me into an encounter with a kindness, which is frankly unknown and terrifying. I've been thinking a lot about people who are chameleons and when they change their behaviour or what they stand for to suit the different people that they hang out with. And I kind of was watching someone do it on the weekend and I thought, like, why wouldn't you just be your authentic self? Like, what is it about your authentic self, which, you know, I think is lovely for of this person, that you wouldn't stay true to that? And I wonder in your experience why you think people do that, why they feel they need to change um, who they are to fit into certain surroundings with different groups of people or just a person. Mm, such a good question. I mean, look, I think, again, we need to look at childhood and there are childhoods where there may not be overt abuse, no one's hitting anyone, there's no, you know, but there might be the following dynamic. Imagine if there's a parent who is very fragile for some reason. Maybe they have a very intense job. Maybe they have an illness. Maybe they're wrestling with someone. And the child is constantly told, don't bother your mother, father, caregiver in some way. They're, you know, the, the study door is locked shut or the, the bedroom door is shut or they're, they're away somewhere. Don't bother them because they couldn't take it. Or maybe someone's growing up with a sibling who has an illness. It's like, don't make a fuss because your little brother, your little sister has da, 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 whatever it may be. In other words, a childhood in which showing your true self is not very welcome, in which the child grows up with a sense that the more of itself it shows, the greater the danger is. And that the best way to survive and adapt is to put on a, a false self, to put on an act that will try and mirror the behavior of others. That's the way to safety, right? So long as I mirror the behavior of others, I can be safe. And those people grow up to be the proverbial people pleasers. Of course, people pleasers don't actually please people, they just annoy them. But, you know, it's a terribly sad story because 
they didn't feel their true self was accepted. And therefore, they go through the world showing only their false self, smiling at things that are not funny, agreeing with comments they don't like, all because their true views, you know, there's something really key to think about, which is when you look at people behaving in a certain way, and you might be tempted to go, they're crazy, they're, they're, they're annoying, they're, they're doing something completely weird. The way to interpret it is always to say, they're probably manifesting a behavior that at one point in life, when they were small or smaller, made a lot of sense. More than a lot of sense, it was a survival strategy. Problem is, they don't understand they're doing it, and it makes no sense today. The circumstances that made that behavior necessary have evaporated. So, you know, typical example, let's say somebody who is completely incapable of intimacy, has a, 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 a wall of invulnerability around them, deeply unhelpful. They annoy their partners, they screw up, you know, relationships, blah, 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 because no one can ever get through to them. And people go, why are they like this, et cetera, et cetera. Well, scroll back to their history. Maybe, maybe they had, let's say, a parent who was an alcoholic or who abused them in some way, or who was threatening to commit suicide, something, something extreme. And that person needed to become invulnerable. They needed to grow a wall in order to get to the next stage of life. Without that capacity, they would have either died or died psychologically. And defense mechanisms are there to protect us in extreme situations. What makes them difficult is we continue with them when they are no longer warranted. And so, you know, all of us are doing things. You know, this is a different way of looking at things rather than looking at people who, you know, I don't know, I mean, other examples. Let's imagine someone who keeps making jokes. They can't stop being the clown. Wherever they are, they're the jokey one. They're the clown. And you think, I wish that person could just shut up and access something sadder, more real, and, and stop being kind of plastic funny all the time, right? We, we all know these people, particularly in entertainment, right? They often end up in, the, in entertainment. But imagine if this person had, let's say, a depressed parent who, you know, wasn't hanging on to life very dearly. What did they need from their five-year-old child? Someone who was really upbeat, knew how to make jokes, and wasn't going to despair. So that, at a certain point, behavior which is now ruining their capacity for an authentic and creative life, genuinely creative life, was once absolutely key. So once again, every time you look at behavior in yourself or in others that doesn't really seem to make sense and that seems exaggerated, overblown, or just plain unhelpful, ask yourself, at one point this made sense. At one point, this was the difference between life and death. So be, that's a very, that's a way to become compassionate towards either yourself or others who are doing stuff that is really not that great. Uh, at one point, it was quite a clever strategy. Now the challenge is, can they outgrow that strategy to meet the demands of the real world and to meet their own aspirations for happiness and well-being? And when it comes to friendships, I wonder, you know, you mentioned you kind of just need one or two friends that you can be authentic with and your real self with who you find inspiring and you have deep and meaningful conversations, but you can also laugh with them, cry with them. I'm a big believer in quality over quantity because you can have all the friends in the world, but if they're of that shallow nature, then what are you really kind of getting out of that? So if people are listening, 
I just think, and I'd love to know what you think, you know, if you can find one or two people in your life that you can really trust and you feel comfortable with who enrich you some way, then you're kind of winning at life. I think so. And I think we're given an unhelpful picture of how common friendship should be. Particularly, I think it starts in school where, you know, we want a gang of friends, Mm. you know, uh, we want to be popular. And that means, you know, having 20, 30, 40 people. Um, It continues into adult life where if we're getting married, we might want to have 20 people at our wedding, 30 people, 40 people, 50 people. You know, by the time you've got 100 people attending your wedding, most people don't really like you. Most people don't really know you. They can't. They can't. You know, we are. there's only so much time to really build friendship. A friendship worthy of the name is, is a very rare thing, as rare as love. And we'll have done very well if at the end of our life we can lay claim to one, two, three friends. Amazing. That is true wealth, you know, in the, in the, in the kind of genuine emotional uh, sense. Why is friendship so hard? One of the reasons, there are lots of reasons, but one of the reasons is we don't know how to talk to each other. We don't know how to listen to one another. It's, it's a tragic, you know, people say it often, but here's a little masterclass, right? It's so nice to be listened to. What does it mean to be listened to? The way, the way in which you need to be listened to is someone speaks, and then the other person, rather than rushing in with an anecdote of their own, should simply repeat back to the speaker what it is they've said. So they'll say, blah, blah, blah happened with my mother. And then the person, the good friend, should go, okay, so I'm hearing that your mother's tricky because she's not giving you this, but at the same time, she's imposing da-da-da. And then the other person feels literally a glow in their heart. They're like, oh my God, someone has taken the trouble to listen to me and to reflect me back to myself. It's such a simple technique. It's, you know, most of us, if we said like, to a friend, what would you know? What would you like for Christmas? What would you like for my birthday? Just this kind of listening for half an hour. That's all I need. I don't need olive oil. I don't need a fancy back scrub. I don't need a, a spa day. I just need someone who's going to listen to the trickier messages from in me and not tell me immediately what I should do or the way it was for their uncle when they had that problem or et cetera, et cetera. But just hold that space. It's It's one of the most beautiful things in the world. I wonder why we have become a society that is more focused on what we have to say than what others have to say as well. Like, I wonder how that happened. Well, it's a vicious circle of not being listened to. Those who are not listened to can't bear to listen to others. Because, you know, let's remember, listening to someone is a very arduous process. It means that you need to put your own needs at bay for a moment. I mean, the person who keeps saying, oh, that reminds me of something with my uncle. That, that's exactly what happened to me when I went to London or whatever it is. What's going on there is they haven't been listened to and they have such an urgent need to enter the conversation, to take care of ego needs. That The so-called egoist is not someone whose ego has been stroked endlessly. No, it's someone who's completely neglected. The grandiose person is not someone who thinks brilliantly of themselves. It's someone who feels like a nothing. The so-called narcissist is not some uh, inveterate believer in themselves. They're someone who's completely fragile about who they are. So it's always the opposite of what it seems. Alan, I wonder what is the best advice that you have ever been given? Um, Mine always goes blank. But look, I, I think to be able to see that most of what makes life difficult is inside your own head, which has been programmed in 
slightly unhelpful ways through the course of your history. And that the way in which you have can have an easier time in your own mind is to understand what you have been through, properly been through, in quite a lot of detail. I think this can start to give a little bit more oxygen, a little bit more space in your relationship with yourself. And I think too often, you know, Socrates was in on it in you know 400 BC, the unexamined life is not worth living. Now, I think really updating that to 21st century, really it is the unexplored psyche is going to cause you a lot of difficulty. And, and you know, this, this new book is all about how we can open a slightly broader, more generous uh, door on our own minds and become that most important of things, which is a friend to ourselves. What is something that you wish for yourself? Um, I think a, a, an ever increased capacity to do away with anxiety. You know, traditionally, a lot of my problems have been filtered into anxiety. And what I mean by anxiety are, you know, it's what we were talking about earlier, um, worries that don't belong to the present. They're a legacy of the past. Um, and to be able to apportion worry correctly. There are things to be frightened of. Um, number one thing is life's very, very short. The people we care about will die. The people we care about need our help. These are the things that we need to worry about. And so many things are on our plate that if we were able to look at them, I think, what's that thing doing there? You know, it's we know this intellectually because whenever we play that other favorite game of, you know, what would matter if you're on your deathbed, which we should do every hour, right? Um, we instantly know that so much that is currently occupying our time doesn't belong within uh, a, a kind of broader span of time. So being able to import from the deathbed some of that clarity and make sure that we're using it 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years before the deathbed. You know, it's once on the deathbed is a little late. So let's try and get there just ahead of time. Mm. Do you have a favourite saying or mantra? Um, I have a slightly dark saying I do love from uh, the Stoic philosopher Seneca. He says, what need is there to weep over parts of life? He says, the whole of it calls for tears. In other words, he's broadly saying, which sometimes we need to hear, life isn't just difficult for you, it's difficult for everyone all the time. And sometimes that's one of the most consoling things we can hear because we can be beset by a sense of what's gone wrong for me? Everybody else having such a lovely time. I've done something wrong. To be able to go, it's a pretty rocky journey for everyone. And we don't hear that often. People tend to spend a lot of energy sort of putting up a sunny facade. And to be able to go probably behind that facade is difficult for everyone. And of course, that's also a route to friendship. When two people can drop their guard and go, are you having a bad time? Yeah. Are you having a bad time? Yeah. It's the beginning of friendship. Mm, that's so true. What is a life of greatness to you? Well, I think a life of greatness is one where we have been able to be at peace with ourselves, to become at peace. We are no longer on a daily basis fighting civil wars where one part of us is destroying another part of us that's in conflict with another part of us, that we are inwardly coherent, that what we are able to say to others more or less mirrors what we feel, and that what we want more or less mirrors what we need. 
this is the work of a lifetime. And we know we'll get there when we feel calm. You know, we often use that word calm, we want to be calm. But calm is the, is the fruit of a very long process of inner exploration and outer congruence. It's quite simply the most exciting and best goal of life. Alan, you are an absolute wealth of knowledge. I've wanted you on the podcast for a long time for this very reason. Your new book, A Therapeutic Journey, Lessons from the School of Life, is a must read, especially in this day and age. Thank you so much for the conversation today. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.